The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 58, Ancient Japan. Humans may have arrived in Japan between 30 and 40,000 years ago, crossing land bridges from mainland Asia that no longer exist. The earliest Japanese peoples would have been hunter-gatherers and they would have used the obsidian of the islands to manufacture hand tools, but experts cannot agree on their specific ethnic origin. The islands were fertile and presented a good opportunity for the earliest inhabitants, but this was still far earlier than the Neolithic Revolution. With these being island societies, some of the earliest occupants would have developed into highly skilled fishermen, supplementing their diet which would have contained plenty of nuts and berries as well as other hunted meats. Societies would have probably migrated according to the seasons and built thatched shelters in which to stay in for the season in question. In fact, very little is known about the earliest inhabitants of the Japanese islands. What we do know about early Japan is that it is one of the places that we see the earliest emergencies of advanced pottery and the earliest societies share their name with the pottery style called Jomon. The Jomon period may have begun around 15,000 years ago, but we do know that it bridged the gap in Japanese history between hunter-gathering and the first signs of agriculture. Even though pottery is the first thing that most people think of whenever talking about the Jomon, there were significant advances in a number of areas of life during this period. The term jomon is a Japanese word that describes the rope or cord pattern style of pottery typical for this period. The people of the jomon culture were the ones who brought Japan into agricultural living, but they were also skilled creators of tools and jewellery made from a number of different materials. The people of the Jomon period created some very unique statuettes and figurines which have puzzled archaeologists because of their look. They stand as a human would stand, but their bodies are very square and the limbs are often very short and stocky. Some experts have claimed that these statuettes that have been referred to by the name Dogu are female as some of them appear to be pregnant, but this had led experts to suggest that they could be created in reference to a goddess but then also I would suggest through association with other similar figurines of the prehistoric world that they could be fertility symbols. Some of them are very intricately decorated giving the impression that they are either elaborately dressed or that they are wearing tattoos. The thing that really puzzles the experts the most are the heads of the dogu. Many of the heads are 
have dramatically oversized eyes, while the rest of the face is small by comparison. So the head looks very alien, typical of the imagined Roswell grey alien that is so popular in the media. Their loose resemblance to the Roswell alien has led to some suggesting that the Dogu are evidence of ancient alien contact with planet Earth. The Dogu were no longer created after the proliferation of the Yayoi culture in Japan after the 4th century BCE. Yayoi The transition from the Jomon period to the Yayoi period is symbolised by a change in the style of pottery. It seems that there was a necessity for mass production of pottery and so less elaborately styled pottery was now being produced, this time with the assistance of a potter's wheel. The transitions in cultures may be down to a migration from mainland Asia. The exchange of goods between Japan and Korea seems to be evident of the archaeological record from this period, so it definitely seems like a trade relationship was taking place on a significant scale from the end of the Jomon period. An increase in the use of metals for manufacturing weapons and the cultivation of rice suggests a migration from China via the Korean peninsula and a subsequent fusion of cultures. Some experts suggest that no migration took place and that the apparent increase in population was simply a result of the transition to agriculture. Rising aridity in the area of the Gobi Desert may have caused eastward migrations that led to movements from the Korean Peninsula to the Japanese islands, so there is still a strong debate about exactly what happened. It may have been that there was a flow of migration over very many generations, but it does seem that from DNA study that there is a small percentage of Jomon in the modern Japanese person. This is likely to be because Japan was sparsely populated before the Yayoi period, when a significant increase in urbanisation took place. It is possible that there was a conquest of Japan during this period, but there isn't a lot of evidence of warfare. In fact, evidence is hard to come by as we don't have any evidence of writing from this transitional period. The introduction of advanced metallurgy to Japan would have a significant impact on the quality of the weaponry and armour of the Japanese as well as improving agricultural tools. Copper, bronze and iron became commonly used. It is also believed that the earliest form of Japanese language could have migrated from Korean origins during the Yayoi period. There was no evidence of written history in Japan during this period, but definitely there was in China and we can feel confident that there was a trade relationship from Japan that extended beyond Korea and into China. Chinese and Korean sources refer to Japan as war in their earliest mentions of the peoples of the Japanese islands. They refer to peoples that were not operating collectively, but instead were embroiled in civil war. It seems that the weapons being traded and created were being put to good use as the Yayoi people of Japan were operating within their own clans and vying for power against one another.
There was no political union at this point with estimates of there being hundreds of clans centred around family units, especially on the island of Kyushu and southwest Honshu. Some of the clans were working together under the guidance of a chieftain. It may have been that these chieftains claimed to have magical powers representing a type of shaman to their rulers. Chinese texts make reference to a Japanese lady called Himiko who operated as a ruler in Japan, so we can potentially refer to her as a type of queen. It is suggested that she was born in the late 2nd century, so very likely in a land where clan warfare was rife. It is suggested that she had powers which could categorise her as a shaman. It is also suggested that she used her powers in a society ravaged by civil war to entice the population to proclaim her as their queen. She resided in a palace and was waited on by numerous female servants, and she would have had a diplomatic relationship with China. China during this period was fragmenting in the aftermath of the long-lasting Han Dynasty. Warlords were fighting over the spoils of the lands of Han China and one of the more significant of these warlords was a man called Cao Cao who established an area of control called Cao Wei. Cao Wei dominated the lands in the north of China stretching west to the northernmost lands of the Korean Peninsula so its proximity to Japan geographically compared to other Chinese peoples is notable and this is likely why Queen Himiko's diplomatic relationship is stated as being specifically with Wei China. Interestingly, there is no direct reference to Himiko in Japanese literature, although historians believe that other female characters in their literature could actually be Queen Himiko. In fact, the oldest known Japanese scriptures are thought to have been written no earlier than the 8th century, and although they do not make mention of a woman called Himiko, they do certainly provide information about the origins of Japanese culture. The earliest literature references an emperor called Jimmu, suggested to have been born in the late 8th century BCE. He is a descendant of the goddess of the sun, Amaterasu. Amaterasu is one of a number of nature gods connected with the religion of Shinto, which is the traditional religion of Japan and one whose origins are believed to date back to at least the Yayoi period of Japanese history. Emperor Jinmu is considered to be a legendary figure with his reign taking place after the Age of the Gods, an age connected to the creation of the Japanese islands by the gods. Emperor Jinmu is said to be the first man to rule over a united Japan after the conquest of the lands of the east which is compared to the nature of the Yayoi conquest by some. The earliest Japanese literature describes the lineage of emperors that followed the reign of Emperor Jinmu, without mention of the Queen Himiko referenced in Chinese literature. The first empress mentioned in Japanese literature is actually called Empress Jingu, who took control of Japan following the murder of her husband, the Emperor Chuei. 
Jingu is described as an aggressive ruler seeking revenge on her husband's murderers and potentially fearing rebellions against her succession, she was prepared to meet the threats head on. Her reportedly successful large-scale invasion of Korea is suggested to simply be the stuff of legend. The Kofun Period The Kofun Period of Japanese history is much better attested in history by the collaboration of writing and archaeology. It is typical to see in many histories that there is a gradual movement from legendary to semi-legendary to true history. There is a good deal of evidence of the Kofun Period and the associated culture, but historians still question some of the written information. Empress Jingu had consolidated her rule in Japan and the tribal alliance that emerged as a consequence is referred to as the Yamato kingship. It was centred on Yamato, roughly in the area of modern Nara prefecture, and on the largest of the Japanese islands, Honshu. As such, the Kofun period and the following Asuka period are considered together to be the Yamato period of Japanese history. The Kofun period is named after the burial mounds that date from this period, thought to have begun at around the turn of the 4th century. Burial mounds existed from before this specific period, but there is a considerable abundance of them from after this period. Over 150,000 have been located. The most recognisable Kofun mounds are described as keyhole shaped in that they have a circular part with a squared off part connected to it. So they resemble a traditional keyhole shape. They can be found all over the Japanese islands and even on the Korean peninsula. The burial mounds appear to be evidence of a social hierarchy which would support the notion of Japan being made up from a number of clans or family groups referred to as Uji. The burial mounds would have been constructed for the highest members of society such as the chieftains and the grave goods demonstrate the presence of horses and rice cultivation which were two innovations that were brought to Japan likely during the Yayoi migrations. Much in the way of weaponry is present demonstrating the hostile relationships between the various uji. Some of the weapons are highly decorated, suggesting that they could be for ceremonial purposes. Some of the Kofun mounds are huge, with carefully constructed stone burial chambers of a very impressive size. Another interesting aspect of the grave goods found at the Kofun mounds are the Haniwa, which are clay figurines. Analysing these figures shows us more about the nature of the Kofun period and especially its warriors who are the ones being depicted. The warriors are shown to be wearing plate armour and carrying swords and with the figurines not just restricted to humans we can see that the clay figurine horses are fully equipped with saddles and stirrups that indicate that some of the humans would have been cavalrymen. The deliberate and considered placement of the Haniwa on top of and in later cases around the Kofun mounds 
suggests that the figurines were intended to protect the mound or to accompany the deceased noble to the afterlife. The lack of evidence of human sacrifice may also be evidence of the Haniwa assuming this role. The Haniwa were not just restricted to items of war but also items of agriculture including farm animals and agricultural equipment. The Yamato kingship was a political union of many Uji, ruled over by one emperor. The Uji would be responsible for governing their clan but may have been allocated tasks to carry out for the good of the imperial cause such as managing the military forces. Uji would come and go from the kingship according to their own political desires and descendants of the emperor may have an Uji created for them. The emperor himself would be referred to as the Okimi. Some inscriptions on weapons during the period mention the rule of heaven and earth, which can be connected to the Chinese notion of heaven, which you may recall was a highly important thing for the validation of Chinese emperors, as they were expected to receive the mandate of heaven to legitimise their rule. So the mandate of heaven may have been an important thing for these early Japanese emperors too. The Asuka Period Migrations from China and Korea continued throughout these earliest centuries of modern Japanese society and with those migrations came the ideas and concepts such as the mandate of heaven. These concepts would include Confucianism and Buddhism. Confucianism was conceptualised in China around a thousand years before the Asuka period of Japan, while Buddhism was introduced to China after the birth of Confucianism. Buddhism came to China from the lands of the Indian subcontinent via the Silk Road trade routes to the Far East. As mentioned before, the traditional polytheistic observances of the Japanese people is considered to be the indigenous religion of Shinto. Shinto evolved from the traditional practices and beliefs of the earliest Japanese societies, which were somewhat animistic in their nature. That is, that it was believed that spirits or sacred essence existed in most objects, whether animate or inanimate. It was evidently from the 6th century onwards that Buddhism made an impact on Japanese society after being introduced from the royal courts of Korea and this is considered to be symbolic of the beginning of the Asuka period of Japanese history. This is when the imperial capital city of Japan can be found at Asuka in the south of the island of Honshu. The arrival of Buddhism in Japan was very disconcerting for the traditionalist clans who clung on to their Shinto traditions. Some clans found Buddhism quite interesting though, including those who were closely associated with imperial affairs. Eventually, aspects of both religions would be observed throughout Japan. Historians and scholars debate the real nature of religion in Japan during the earliest period, but it does seem that religion wasn't really something that was state-controlled or regulated. The existence of the two religions alongside, and in some cases crossing over each other, is referred to as Shinbutsugo, 
This is an amalgamation of the Kemi of Shinto with the Buddhas of Buddhism. The Kemi are the nature deities of Shinto. The Sogoshi, in other words the Soga clan, embraced Buddhism and became highly influential in imperial affairs, even marrying into the royal family. The Mononobishi were vehemently opposed to the Sogoshi, choosing to uphold Shinto traditions and stand against the Soga and their embraced foreign cultural influences. Royal offspring would now contain Soga blood and therefore the Soga tried to influence the succession of the imperial emperor to their favour. The Mononobe would stand up against the intentions of the Soga and the result was conflict. In a battle near Mount Shigi in the year 587, the Mononobishi leader was killed by an arrow fired by a Soga archer and the Soga defeated their Mononobi rivals. The influence of Buddhism on Japanese society was now here to stay. One of the numbers who fought on the side of the Soga was the son of the recently deceased Emperor Yomai and the son's name was Prince Shotoku. Shotoku would make great efforts to improve Japan by promoting the centralisation of government. He may have had a hand in the construction of a text called the Hokkegisho, which was a very significant document. The Hokkegisho is a text based on the writings of a Chinese Buddhist monk called Fei Yun, and not only is it evidence of the promotion of Buddhism in Japan, but it is also the earliest known Japanese text. There can be no doubt that the emergence of writing in Japan was thanks to the migrations of peoples from China and Korea who brought the art of the written word to Japan, and so an indigenous history of Japan was about to begin. Chinese influence was certainly apparent and was openly encouraged during this period. Confucian values were promoted and young Japanese students would travel to China to improve their general knowledge. The Chinese would have ambitions of turning Japan into a suzerain state, but despite Shotoku openly promoting Chinese cultural additions to Japan, he would be sure to identify Japan as a state in its own right, prepared to show respect to China, but not prepared to accept subjugation by China. While Prince Shotoku was alive, there was a period of relative stability in Japan. He wasn't actually the emperor, but he served as a regent under Empress Sueko, who was his aunt. Shotoku actually died a few years before the empress, and on the passing of the empress in the late 620s, the stability of the imperial court waned, as there were question marks over who should be in control of Japan. The Sogashi had monopolised control of the political system and this would not be popular with the other Uji who opposed the principles of the Soga. One of those clans who opposed the Soga were the Nakatomishi and they would conspire with Empress Gogyoku's son, Prince Nakanooi, to assassinate a highly influential Soga statesman and this was witnessed by the Empress in an event called the Ishii Incident. The Empress was so shocked that she abdicated, 
because this high-profile murder in such close proximity to her was seen as a spiritual pollution, maybe because the traditions of Shinto promote the sanctity of cleanliness. Empress Kogyoku's brother would take the throne, becoming the Emperor Kotoku, and the new emperor would bring in some sweeping reforms, nationalising land holdings and centralising the leadership of the lands under his influence, turning clan leaders into provincial governors. This would give the emperor even greater power over the clans as their power to influence was diminished. The capital city was moved to Naniwa, which is essentially the location of the modern city of Osaka. These reforms are referred to in Japanese history as the Paika reforms. On the Korean peninsula, traditionally there had been three kingdoms in the south and we will discuss these in more detail in a later episode. The Japanese imperial court appeared to have a closer connection to the Korean kingdom of Pekche. The kingdom of Pekche fell in the year 660 and this brought the influence of Tang China further east and as a consequence even more Chinese influence was felt in Japan. Alongside the art of writing and the philosophies of Confucianism and Taoism came the Chinese calendar and the Chinese concepts of yin and yang and the five elements which developed to become the Japanese system of philosophy called Omiyodo. It is also possible that it could have been as early as the Asgar period that the modern name of the country of Japan began to take shape. As mentioned earlier in the episode, the Chinese gave the name Wa to the Society of Japan in the earliest known written mentions. This name was embellished by the Japanese when they created the reference Yamato, which essentially means the Great Wa. The Yamato period is essentially the amalgamation of the Kofun period with the Asgar period, but towards the end of these periods, the Japanese appeared to desire another change of name. The Japanese requested that the new name for the country be Nippon. With the differences of regional dialects of the Far East, the Chinese would pronounce the written word Nippon as Jupan, which is likely to be how the name was discovered by Western explorers, the English version of this name becoming Japan. The Japanese name Nippon is now pronounced Nihon in modern Japan. The Nara Period The Taika reforms enabled Japan to become more economically viable and much of what the nation did as a united entity was to enable it to be strong enough to resist the power of Tang China. The incorporation of aspects of Chinese traditions and legal nature into the Japanese system allowed Japan to modernise. A new and modern capital city was built over the turn of the 8th century named Heijokyo. The city has also been known by the name Nara, which is why we give the period after its completion the name Nara period. The new capital city was grandiose, with Buddhist temples, palaces and administrative buildings. 
there was a significant feeling of a burgeoning aristocratic class among the elite. Clan leaders were now abandoning their lands to the state in favour of an aristocratic lifestyle in the capital city itself. The lands were now divided into 66 provinces, each with a governor who was a member of the aristocracy. Agricultural lands were now uniformly allocated to their local owners who would manage the workers and the yield, submit taxes to the central authority, as well as produce and manpower in what resembled a style of feudal expectations, but this model was also based on the model used in Tang, China at the time. Seven great Buddhist temples were constructed at Nara, symbolising how important Buddhism had become to the aristocracy of Japan. Shinto traditions were not ignored though, with emperors still recognising the kami, the Shinto deities. The eastern great temple, one of the seven, is known in Japanese as the Todaishi. Emperor Shomu would commission the erection of a great Buddha figure in the main hall of the Todaishi. This great Buddha statue, or Daibatsu, as they are known in Japan, is described as the best-known Daibatsu in Japan, and the bronze statue at Dojaiji is one of the largest in the world. Emperor Shomu eventually abdicated to become a Buddhist monk in 752. His daughter would take over as the empress, called Empress Gorken. Another powerful clan that had emerged since the 7th century was the Fujiwara clan, which had descended from the Nakatomi clan, that had challenged the rule of the Soga clan during the 7th century. During the reign of Empress Koken, a powerful statesman of the Fujiwara clan called Fujiwara no Nakamaro warned the empress of the disloyalty of the heir to the throne, Prince Fernando. Therefore, she abdicated in favour of Prince Oyi, who became Emperor Junin. It appears that Emperor Junin ruled simply as a figurehead, and that it was Nakamaro who was the true power. This did not sit well with Empress Koken, who came back to the throne and deposed Emperor Junin, and this was a disaster for Nakamaro. Nakamaro rebelled against the Empress, and so the Empress took military action against him, pursuing him and executing Nakamaro and his close family members. Empress Koken was now renamed Empress Shotoku in respect of her second reign as Empress, and she had been supported closely by a powerful Buddhist monk called Dokyo, who seemed to have a desire to grab the power for himself. Under imperial law, members of the Buddhist priesthood were limited in the secular powers that they could attain, so they would be kept to a religious position in the royal court. The seemingly greedy actions of Dokyo were a great concern for many of the Japanese aristocracy. The Buddhist priesthood had been gifted so much by the aristocracy that they were now potentially capable of becoming too powerful in secular society. Dokyo appeared to look for ways to justify a personal bid to become the Japanese emperor in his own right. But this all came to nothing after the death of Empress Shotoku, 
when the aristocracy banished him from the royal court. Other members of the Fujiwara clan who were close to the imperial court were suitably concerned over the growing power of the Buddhist priesthood and believed that something needed to be done. Although the great capital at Nara had been built with great care and expense at the beginning of the 8th century, by the end of the 8th century the amount of powerful Buddhist centres within the city were overwhelming. The imperial capital city was very hastily moved northwards to Nagaokakyo, abandoning the Buddhist-rich city of Nara and protecting the throne from the overzealous members of the Buddhist priesthood. Shortly afterwards, at the end of the 8th century, a new permanent capital city was established at Kyoto. The Nara period of Japanese history was over. It is important to note that the Nara period was the time when the two oldest known works of Japanese literature were created. The Kojiki tells the story of the mythological history of the Japanese islands and is considered an important book for observers of the Shinto religion. The Nihon Shoki tells a more detailed story of the history of the nation of Japan. Historians and patriots refer to these works to find out information about the ancient history of Japan, including evidence of the imperial lineage stretching back to the rule of Emperor Jimmu. Even though it is strongly suggested that Emperor Jimmu is a mythological emperor, he is still considered as the first emperor of Japan in an incredible imperial lineage which still exists to this very day. The long line of emperors is considered to be the oldest continuous monarchy in the entire world. Each new emperor accedes to the Kikamonsho, which is the chrysanthemum throne, and the current emperor is Naruhito, who became the emperor following the abdication of his father Akihito in 2019. Naruhito is the 126th Emperor of Japan according to the traditional line of succession, which goes all the way back to the first Emperor, Jimmu. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast episode on the ancient Japanese islands. And... Um, I must apologise to all you native Japanese speakers for my inexperienced knowledge of pronunciation of Japanese words and phrases, so I hope you will forgive me. Now, if you enjoy the podcast and you would like to support the podcast, then please visit our website, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. By doing so, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and qualify for gifts and rewards. This week, uh, we welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati Michael Bednorse, Andrew Berman, Kelvin Gascoigne and John Baltheis. So thank you to you all for uh, your valuable contributions to the project. Now, if you'd like to access bonus material and you would like to listen to the podcast ad-free, 
then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Just click on the link in the podcast description and it will take you there and you can sign up for a very low price. If you'd like to get in touch with me on the podcast, then please drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Listener messages and reviews. Now, one of those new uh, patrons, Andrew Berman, uh, wrote in and said, uh, Chris, I started listening to the podcast in May of 2022 and caught up today. I promised myself in the podcast that when this happened, I would become a patron. I listen through Spotify and your podcast is simply awesome. It's everything I was ever looking for in a podcast. Informative, engaging, well-produced and just plain fun to listen to. You are a superb host, of course. Two, I feel like I know you. You seem like a true gem and your skills and preparation just blow me away. Along the way, I listen to every bit, every podcast, all the messages and reviews, special episodes, magazines, etc. I'm not the least bit upset that, uh, to be caught up and technically now have to wait for new content because I've been saving certain episodes of particular interest and now I'm keen to go back and listen to them. Really, really well done. Thank you for bringing joy and learning to our lives, Andy. What a kind and warm message, Andy. Thank you so much. And also, thank you for your support. Your support really does make a difference to the podcast. It really enables me to invest more time and uh, more quality into the podcast. But I'm going to address a couple of things um, in terms of the state of the podcast in the subscribers episode. So if you are a subscriber on Spotify, um, you can then listen to that episode. It's, uh, it's a subscribers episode. Uh, but for all you people who donate through Patreon, you will get access to this ap- episode. Just, uh, you, you're always a week behind the Spotify crowd so um so you do eventually get access so don't worry if you feel like you've got to pay twice you don't have to do that um but that's um that's it really uh next week we're going to continue the story of japan into the Heian period and uh talk a little bit more about um the the real medieval medieval japan the real we're going to get into the the interesting stuff uh, the stuff of Japanese legend. And um, that will be uh, next week. We're going to stay in Japan for a few episodes before we go over to Korea and then uh, China. And then, of course, inevitably, we have to talk about Chinggis Khan. So, um, so that will be something really to look forward to. Um, so that's coming up. But don't forget to listen to the subscribers episode if you subscribe on Spotify. And uh, can't wait to get back with you next week. Until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking Patreon link. Email the show at history of the world podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.